I'm Philip Schmidt and you're listening to the European Skeptics Podcast, the real ESP experience. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 261. I'm your host, Andres Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Bökman. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son! Hello there! Ooh. Okay, so who's got snow? At the moment. I got a little bit of snow. Five centimeters about. Okay, you're out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Germany has a lot, but I don't. I think it's just like, it just didn't want to make me happy. Mm, yeah. So if I if I look at the map of Germany right now and, <laughs> and try to, to find out where there is snow, there is a little spot on the map yes. where you are. Yeah. And all it's the like, rest is covered in snow. It's like okay. Asterix and Obelix uh, where the Romans have conquered everything except for this tiny village. And that's how it is with uh, snow and us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. So who's, who's Asterix and who's, who's Obelix? Well, Obelix. <laughs> you would like to know, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So how are things? Apart from the lack of snow in Germany. Mm, good. <laughs> or in Hungary, that, for that matter. Good. I also have a bit of lack of sleep, mm-hmm. <laughs> but apart from that, All right. I'm really good. Comes with the territory. <laughs> I'm wondering why that is. Uh-huh. I probably it's just because of the snow. Like I can sleep better if it's if there's snow. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I sleep like a baby every night. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> I sleep with a baby. <laughs> is everything okay with a uh, with a little scapty baby? Uh, yeah. yeah, she's um she's seven weeks now. Seven weeks. Wow. Almost almost seven weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Time flies, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels like we've had her forever. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so to, tomorrow she's starting school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the day after that she'll she'll um, have a university degree. So. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna happen before yeah. you know it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, nice. that's right. <laughs> you kid, but that's how it feels. <laughs> mm. Yeah, we've got a special episode this week, which means that uh, we haven't prepared for a regular episode because we are giving you, our dear listeners, an interview. Ah, a great interview. I, I, I think it was a great interview that we pre-recorded. And uh, why it's even more special is because it was with uh, Philip Schmidt, who's one of the authors of the book that we promoted, which is the COVID-19 Vaccine Communication Handbook. Quite handy these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he is one of the authors and uh, he's an expert in vaccine hesitancy. And this is how we ended up interviewing him. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, it was. So I, I really hope that our listeners will find it interesting and useful as well. So why don't we move on to that interview without further ado? Yeah. <laughs> Every now and then we interview someone whose work we think to be of interest to our listeners and skeptics around Europe. This week, our guest is Philip Schmidt, who's a behavioral scientist at the Psychology and Infectious Diseases Lab at the University of Erfurt in Germany. He's also an interim lecturer for statistics and methods at the university's Department of Psychology. 
Philip is an expert in the psychological background of vaccine hesitancy, which is one of the hot topics for skeptics due to the ongoing pandemic. He has worked a lot with the World Health Organization and other intergovernmental institutions like the Robert Koch Institute. He recently took part in the international team behind the brilliant and extremely important booklet, the COVID-19 Vaccine Communication Handbook, but he also worked on the updated version of the debunking handbook that uh, we've also talked about on the show. Philip, welcome to the ESP and thanks for agreeing to this interview. Thank you very much. Welcome. So let's jump right into the middle of it. Why we're we here, we all know why it is important these days uh, to talk about vaccine hesitancy. But uh, can you sum up what the current state of vaccine denialism is in Europe? So how, how bad is the situation? Do we need to worry? Okay, I think it's very important to differentiate between vaccine hesitancy and vaccine denialism. So yes. vaccine denialism is really like the hard stuff. If people deny vaccination, they usually deny vaccination in general. So it is independent of whether this is corona or measles or influenza and so on. They are in principle against the science behind vaccination. When we talk about vaccine hesitancy, then this is more a common thing because people can experience vaccine hesitancy for a lot of different reasons. Um, and there are three main reasons why people can be hesitant, really, if you sum up all the models that are around there. And one of them is uh, the lack of confidence in vaccination. That means that people distrust the safety and effectiveness of vaccination. The other is complacency, which means a lack of um, the awareness of the threat of the disease and convenience, which means that you have structural barriers and you can't really get vaccinated. So these are all good reasons to not get vaccinated and they are different to what we would call vaccine denialism. So vaccine deniers are actually quite only a small group of people, like around three to five percent, who are actually against vaccination. Um, and vaccine hesitant people are a lot more. Obviously, we have with Corona the case that, for example, in Germany, we are up to like 61% of people are willing to get vaccinated, while 39% have like a hesitant state of mind. Okay, so, so, so you did mention a, a few things, but what is it that is probably the most important determining factor towards uh, hesitancy and what's the case with the denialism so there are two things we understand that but what's the difference in what causes them so um when we look at vaccine denialism then this is mainly caused by a lack of confidence and safety and effectiveness of vaccination and that is mainly based on misinformation mm -hmm. so um people are misinformed because they read misinforming um, information online or because they are in social communities where everyone is against vaccination and so it's very tough to be the only one inside that social circle that says well i'm pro-vaccination because then that means you're probably disconnecting to your family to your friends and so on and other people are misinformed because they actually have some irrational phobias like fear of needles and so they use misinformation as an explanation model for why they should not get vaccinated and try to kind of cover up that they're actually just fearsome. And there are other reasons like motivated rejection of science for political reasons, because some people reject science for political reasons like 
being anti-governmental, being anti-established scientific bodies and so on. So these are motivators of being a denier and they are all driven by misinformation while hesitancy can be driven by structural barriers simply by just a lack of access to vaccination or a lack of the awareness of the threat of the disease. If we stay with the deniers for a second, what are the links between vaccine denialism and uh, conspiracy theories? So conspiracy theories are also a symptom of some of these drivers of denialism. Research talks about conspiracy mentality, which is something like a personal trait that people can have. And that means that if you are high on the scale of conspiracy mentality, then you always think that people are covering something up, that there is always something behind the curtain. So that's a personal tendency towards uh, thinking that something is going on. And if, if people have that high level of conspiracy mentality, then they obviously are more against vaccination because they think, well, pharmaceutical industries, they are hiding something, the government is hiding something, and so on. So that's the connection of that. But there's also some connection in the political area. So political parties use conspiracy theories as narratives to downplay the authority of governments. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, they also use vaccination as an issue for that. From a psychological point of view, for people who are drawn to conspiracy theories and this conspiratorial mindset, what can constitute a very strong ground base for them? Is there anything that they can find that they actually trust? So, <laughs> your question is whether conspiracy theorists can trust any specific kind of information. Yeah. Well, that they they actually trust their own mistrust, right? So, whenever <laughs> <laughs> whenever you come up with something, there's something like a called an infinite regress, where they always distrust the next source that you cite. So it's very difficult for a for a hardliner to accept anything that an official government or someone from an official scientific organization will say. But there are ways, of course, of approaching to people who are prone to conspiracy theories because usually they experience a lack of control in times of uncertainties like corona. So they use conspiracy theories to kind of explain what's going on, that's an epistemic need, but also to give them some sort of control over their own life. Because... What you experience when you believe in a conspiracy theory is some closure of an open um, issue. If everything can be explained by a certain entity that is behind everything, well, you have some sort of explanation. While scientists nowadays say something like, well, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's scary, yeah. <laughs> that's scary, yeah. yeah. You, you rather start to believe in something that is really, really weird than saying that we don't know. Yeah, so I, I guess the, the actual denialists are, are very hard to reach. Uh, but if we switch over to the vaccine-hesitant people, I think they are easier to, to reach, I guess. They are more rational and you can, you can talk to them. So how do you go about to reach the vaccine-hesitant people in the best way? So this, this is very important because reaching deniers is something that probably won't work. So you have to address the vaccine-hesitant people. In the research and the behavioral science about vaccination, we call them fence-sitter because they don't really know on which side of the fence they fall down, the evidence-based one or... We have to get them the, the right push there. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to nudge them. So, uh, and reaching them is the crucial part of vaccine communication. So, and there are different ways of approaching them. And the first thing that we need to identify is the actual barrier that they have. So um, identifying the reason why they are hesitant is crucial for any kind of communication approach. So you can't use a one-size-fits-all approach in addressing vaccine hesitancy. Um, and governments, they sadly usually try to do that. They come up with a campaign that has one single picture, one single message for everyone, and a web page. And that's it. But addressing vaccine hesitancy first means to understand the different barriers and then target them directly with, well, promising approaches. And by saying that people can be hesitant because um, they have a lack of the awareness of the disease and people can be hesitant because they have a lack of confidence in the safety and effectiveness of vaccination and people can be hesitant because they experience constraints. By acknowledging that, you can actually identify what is the main reason that we need to address. And if you know which one it is, then you can design a specific campaign for that. Yeah. So, but if you are a government institution or an authority and you want to reach a lot of people, you can't go interview people and say, what's your reason? What's your reason? How, how do you do it then? Well, that's actually, you can. That's what we do when we do surveys, right? So we ask a lot of people, not just like your neighbor, mm -hmm. but like, let's say a thousand people. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of monitor what are the main reasons in that sample. And then we try to estimate what are the main reasons in the entire population. And of course, by increasing the sample size, you increase the precision of your estimate. But even a thousand people is better than just to assume what the reasons are. And for example, in Germany, we do have a monitor like that that is going on every week asking people what are the reasons why they don't get vaccinated and by monitoring them we can actually react accordingly mm -hmm. so does that mean that uh there are actually policies that consistently prove successful because they are following the actual data with regards to those motivations? Can you point at some of those consistently positive and working policies? Well, actually, in the time of Corona, this is probably too new to, to say uh, whether any of these approaches was evidence-based and is working now um, because we are right yeah. in the process. But what we know from the evidence about a vaccine communication is that tailored campaigns are always more effective than the one-size-fits-all approaches mm -hmm. because they just ignore what the reasons are behind specific hesitancies yeah so for example if there is a person and he is not going to get vaccinated because he needs to walk 300 kilometers then trying to debunk his misinformations won't make him get vaccinated because the problem yeah, yeah. is not misinformation it's the distance right yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. and you've worked with the the world health organization as well do you see that such a large-scale organization such an umbrella organization can address the issues at hand properly or is it better to try to localize the problem solving mechanisms as well as the gathering of the information yeah i think like organizations like the world health organization they can provide frameworks 
and they can also bring money and competence in when it comes down to providing general advice. But they cannot tailor specific campaigns in specific cultural backgrounds because they usually don't have the insights. So what they can do is provide frameworks and meetings and so on and general guidelines, but then it's down to the local people to actually apply that in their context because that's relevant and necessary. And also the local people can identify key persons and key communicators like opinion leaders who can then be used to multiply the messages. Mm -hmm. so, so in the vaccine communication handbook, uh, you go through both methods that don't work and methods that do work when you try to communicate with somebody who is hesitant. Can you take us through, first, let's start with what doesn't work. What, what are the most common mistakes people do? Well, that, that kind of depends on the setting. So it is important to differentiate between two situations in communication. Uh, the first is mass communication. When you talk to people out there and you have a broad audience and probably, in the worst case, a denier who's responding to you. And there is a second situation, that's the direct peer-to-peer -peer situation, like a doctor-patient interaction. That's very private. So these different situations are important when it comes down to identifying what's effective. In the first case, um, if you have a denier who is coming up with some misinformation, you need to counter it directly and you need to be open about it. Identify the rhetorical techniques that are used to misinform the public and call them out for what they are, unmask them, make sure that everyone understands what is wrong about them and then provide the facts about vaccination. In the private situation, that's a bit different because then you need to give people the room to actually talk about their fears and why they actually believe in specific misinformations if you want to turn them around and if you want to provide them the environment to make an informed decision. So in the private situation, it's not very effective to counter people directly. And that's a mistake medical doctors often do, but actually every expert in any field does If we know a lot about a specific area and someone is coming up to us and says something wrong, we usually have the immediate response of saying, well, that's wrong. And I know what's right and I'm going to tell you now. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of di <laughs> yeah. direct yeah. communication in a private situation is not going to work. First, we need to listen to the other person and do that actively. And that means really be willing to understand what the other person is saying and then identify where this misinformation is coming from and acknowledging that this misinformation is actually something that would persuade you as a person as well if you haven't had all the other different facts and informations available. And then if you have done that and you've build up a relationship with your um, colleague or with the person in front of you, then you can come up with the facts and try to ask whether the other person is even willing to listen to you and then you can come up with information and so on. But in public, there's not that time to actually talk about fears and where this information is coming from. Sometimes when you're on a talk show, it's just like one minute or even 30 seconds where you can respond to the denier's claim. And then you need to be very direct to protect all the fence sitters. Mm. Yeah, right. So I, I think we can all recognize that, that we have all done the mistake of assuming that we know why a person is putting forward a, a, an opinion that is wrong and we try to attack them even before we have listened. And, and I think that's a big mistake in any situation. Right. And I think there are many, many parts that we actually don't understand if we don't listen. 
One is why is he even believing in misinformation? But the other thing is that we miss out the opportunity of giving the other person the feeling of being understood. Mm -hmm. And that, that's something very important from a psychological point of view, that the other person feels comfortable talking about what he knows and what he doesn't or she. Yeah, yeah. As opposed to just being outright rejected, because yeah. uh, people tend to cling to their ideas and their knowledge or, or perceived knowledge. And that means that the moment you reject their ideas and the way they think, that, to them at least, becomes equal to them being rejected. Yes. And... Uh, that's the end of the conversation yeah right because you try to you always try to kind of protect your image your social image yeah. of what people have and this is also happening on social media a lot where people are writing some um, misinformations or rather weird standpoints and the immediate response is you are an idiot yeah. like look here and there yeah and i mean if someone calls me an idiot i'm not gonna talk to him anymore yeah right. of course not so that's kind of, the, of <laughs> it's immediate reactance that we experience there yeah but this is something that we intuitively tend to think even as skeptics uh, at least the grown-up ones <laughs> but <laughs> is this properly supported by science as well what we just discussed yes uh, there is um, an approach that is called motivational interviewing mm -hmm. and that approach has been used a lot in vaccination communication as well and there is some very nice evidence quantitative and qualitative about that this is a very good approach in reaching out to hesitant individuals uh -huh. mm -hmm. very good and this uh, motivational interviewing has several steps and one of them is for example asking open questions first so that the other person has the room to actually talk about his fears and his sources that he uses and so on. Mm -hmm. If we take a step back and look at different countries maybe or different regions or communities, are there any main factors that you have identified that contributes to vaccine uptake? I mean, in certain communities, it's natural, it's self-evident. Of course, I get vaccinated. And in certain, it's not. Are there anything there you could, we can see? So specific like cultural drivers of yes or also th hopefully things that we can influence i mean i'm thinking maybe you know if you have a very uh, authoritarian uh, uh, government for instance is that a, a negative thing uh, does democracy help does religion get in the way that kind of thing actually m most of these more meta variables are not that important in predicting whether you get vaccinated or not. So there are different states that um, are successful with different governmental systems that are either successful or not in um, running the vaccination programs. And also religion, of course, there are sometimes religious reasons, but most of them are also based on misinformation. The biggest religious or the, the world religions um, are pretty much pro-vaccination. There is a study um, that actually shows that when you look at the um, propositions of these religions, religions and you also look at the um, specific groups that support the specific religions religious beliefs that most of these religious groups are actually pro-vaccination and if you have a, identified an individual who states some religious concerns most of these concerns are simply based on misinformation of their own religious um, system <laughs> yeah okay yeah what about the role of information i mean skeptics tend to discuss uh, the information deficit model which has been criticized quite openly and and quite widely in the last couple of years as not being the way to go because it doesn't bring about the actual solution however 
when it comes to things like a pandemic and vaccination, actual information is what a lot of people lack in order to be able to understand what the situation is and why it's important to vaccinate, for example. So we, I mean, skeptics in a situation like this tend to get a little bit confused as to what to think. So how do we approach this? Yeah, I think it's very important to acknowledge that and this is also what the monitoring um, monitoring studies are showing in Europe is that people lack information about the coronavirus and also about COVID-19 vaccination. And they have a high need of information. They want more information. And so the best response would be to provide them with more information. Yeah. And this is actually, you could, you could say, well, but that's the information deficit model. Well, no, not really, because no one would, uh, would actually disagree with um, the fact that information is necessary as the first step. But then you have to go further and, sh and look like, how can you actually tailor the information in a way and design the information in a way that everyone understands what you're trying to, um, to say. Mm -hmm. And that's the next step. But first, we need that information. And I perceive a lack of um, information provision on many uh, governmental um, sites and also on the European sites. So people want information, but what they get most of the times are, well, campaigns saying we can do this. Mm. Well, yeah, that's, that's good, <laughs> but I want to know what are the side effects, you know, and this is kind of one of the biggest problems that we have now. Yeah, I guess now we do know much more than we did six months ago, of course, and even two months ago. And we can see it also on how uh, the, the vaccine hesitancy has gone down, actually, in polls. I, 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 it's been very high, a, like in October, it was very high. And then it, very happily, it's come back to something that approaches reasonable things. But how do we, what could we have done in, in October September, October to counter misinformation because since there's no real information, there's only the anti-vaxxers that are claimed to have information. And, and the rest of us who believe in science, we, we can only say, well, we don't know yet. We don't have the vaccine yet, so we can't tell you how safe it is. How do you handle that situation? Well, one approach would be to inoculate people against misinformation. And there is something called like a psychological vaccine, mm -hmm. which is based on the inoculation theory, which means you provide information before people even encounter misinformation. What you can do if you don't know facts is you can still say what's wrong. So if people claim that the governments or pharmaceutical industries should come up with a vaccination that is 100% safe, then you can fairly say that, well, 100% safety is an impossible expectation because no medical product is ever 100% safe. So you can um, prevent people from believing in misinformation by inoculating them um, against that. And if I understand correctly, in this context, inoculating with information doesn't necessarily mean information regarding like medical information only. What's also very important is information on techniques of spreading misinformation. So you recognize what misinformation is 
as opposed to correct information. Right. So, yeah, exactly. In a, in a recent paper um, that I published with my colleague in Nature Human Behavior, we call one of these approaches the topic rebuttal, which means you address specific scientific facts, and the other is the technique rebuttal. So you uncover and unmask rhetorical techniques of deniers. And if you don't know anything about scientific facts, you can still uncover rhetorical techniques in advance. Mm-hmm. So, and this is what you were referring to. So if we don't know anything about the vaccine, we still know what's wrong and what the deniers will probably say. And this is always the same if you have climate change denialism, evolution denialism, vaccination denialism. They always use the same five techniques. So if you know that, you can just simply uncover them as an inoculation intervention and, well, protect people. Yeah. So can you list those five uh, techniques? So um, the first is fake experts. So people or deniers, they always quote a fake expert. They say, well, Dr. Doctor said uh, vaccines aren't safe. And that person that has a doctor doctor is actually has actually a doctor in German language. Yeah. So you, you have an expert, but he isn't really an expert. He's a doctor, not a doctor. Yes, right. So that's the fake expert technique. And that is well, commonly used. The second is impossible expectation. So by saying that a vaccination should be 100% safe, you're actually claiming an impossible expectation because no medical product is ever 100% safe. The third is false logic. So, for example, using ad hominem attacks against people during a debate and saying, well, but I don't listen to your arguments because you're blue-eyed. Well, being blue-eyed has nothing to do with my arguments. So that's (laughs) a false logic technique that they always use. The other is selectivity. So they cherry-pick data. And this is something very dangerous because sometimes this is done in a very well convincing way. They pick out single studies that actually show in effect saying, for example, that vaccinations cause autism. But in the meta-analysis, in the end, there is no mean effect size that would ever prove that. But they pick out these single studies um, that actually support their claim, which is selectivity. And the fifth technique is conspiracy theory. So people always claim that there is something going on behind the curtain. And this is also very different to tackle because it is something like an infinite regress. So they can always claim whatever you say, well, but you're only paid by Big Pharma. And anything that you will say is just more proof that you're actually being paid. Mm. Yeah. Any proof against your conspiracy is actually taken as a proof for the conspiracy. <laughs> right. Yeah. There is one of these uh, techniques that uh, really strikes me as very difficult to identify. And that is occasionally the case with uh, fake experts. Because especially with uh, COVID-19 deniers, sometimes the experts they bring in are actual medical doctors. Some of them are even virologists. We've all heard about the movie Plandemic. And uh, in that movie, the main character, that woman that we shall not name now Um. (laughs) she used to be a virologist so that gives a certain level of credibility how can that be addressed yeah that's actually a good point so there will always be someone even from the scientific community who will come up with misinformation or rather odd claims and what we need is a communication approach on the mass communication level that is based on scientific consensus so whenever you have an individual there's still in most cases 99% of other scientists who say or actually support the facts what studies show is by actually showing this to people you can increase the support for science-based actions mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So we tend to tra- uh, track the anti-vax movement back to Andrew Wakefield and his cronies. So do you have data that links him specifically and his entourage with the the current anti-vax movement? Not really data. I mean, it is obvious that he was also influencing the entire ideas that Donald Trump had about vaccination. Um, They were actually very close and you could also get some pictures of both of them. Well, pretty much holding hands, I would say. But there is no no empirical evidence that he has big influence on uh, what's going on now. But he's a big player in that uh, field and he's also producing very weird and misleading movies uh, that are done and full of emotional narratives which are shown to be very persuasive so we cannot yeah yeah, in the skeptic movement it is like a general belief that he was the one setting the whole anti-vax movement in motion but then we cannot be absolutely sure about that can we no not really and i think actually the the struggle with anti-vax is much older than andrew wakefield that's right so i mean it's it started with the first vaccine and it was and it grew from there so he's of course a big part in the entire measles myth campaigning but yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. i wouldn't give him give him the credit for (laughs) (laughs) anti-vax or for anything else yeah that matter (laughs) no do we have a list of the most common vaccine-related myths? Or can you name a couple that you've come across in your research that are the ones that stand out the most? Well, there are quite a few, and there are also often on pages from CTC or the, or the Robert Koch Institute, you can find common misconceptions um, that are then addressed with facts. For example, that the measles vaccine causes autism, which is probably one of the most famous misconceptions. Or you have other misconceptions that vaccines should be 100% safe, of course, or that vaccines cause severe chronic diseases And you also have the link between vaccination and cancer, the myth that the HPV vaccine does not protect you against cancer because there isn't even a disease, (laughs) or the the microchip (laughs) misinformation that Bill Gates is using vaccinations to distribute little microchips to actually, well, kind of monitor individuals. We've already touched a little bit on that, but do we have data to support the statement that if we try to counter these either anti-vaccination or just vaccine-hesitant sentiments, if we don't do it the right way, I mean, by oversimplifying things, is that data that supports that it leads to even more distrust in the system? So we do have data that shows that it can be very risky to not talk about risks Mm -hmm. and deny them. So if you, for example, say that there is no risk associated with vaccination, then people will immediately mistrust that source because they know. Okay. Yeah. And but by denying side effects or risks, you can you actually run the risk of losing trust. Yeah, but there isn't, and this is also important from the debunking handbook, and you probably 
talked with uh, Steve Lewandowski about this a lot more, but there isn't a lot of evidence that you run the risk of backfire effects when communicating or trying to uh, debunk misinformation. So whenever you have the chance, go out there and debunk it. Yeah, which is which is a new development uh, compared advice. to the, the previous version of the debunking handbook that 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 the current research back then didn't show that, right? So right. this is how science works. It's amazing. <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> also something that the vaccine deniers try to to use as an argument against science, mm -hmm. which is impossible expectation, yeah. stating that, well, last year you said something else, right? Because we update our belief system <laughs> and now you don't. <laughs> yeah. Right. So about the actual COVID vaccine communication handbook, uh, who was it written for? What's the target audience for the, for the book? Well, the target audience is very broad. It's actually anyone who wants to communicate about the COVID-19 vaccine, pretty much. And it's for uh, journalists, but also for policymakers and um, also for other communicators in organizations and institutions, mm -hmm. and also for medical doctors. Mm -hmm. And w what is the feedback uh, like? Have you got a lot of, lot of feedback from those communicators, uh, policymakers, and high-profile actors in society? Yes, we receive quite a lot of feedback from journalists, but also from communicators from countries uh, within WHO saying, that this is very helpful because it is so concrete and full with direct examples. So there is a lot of evidence out there already. And this idea of the handbook was to kind of produce a hub um, of what's out there and also write it in a way that people can actually apply what we know from studies. Mm -hmm. And just like with the debunking handbook, you encourage people to translate it, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Of course. And the new idea of the COVID-19 handbook is that this is also based on a community that updates this handbook on a regular base. So you actually have scientists working on it now and updating the wiki every day pretty much mm -hmm. because well the science is changing every day about COVID-19 vaccination yeah, yeah. talking about you, you mentioned the word hub and uh, this community of uh, authors both for their debunking handbook and the COVID-19 vaccine communication handbook it's an amazing list of authors uh, scientists including yourself uh, who, who worked on this and the engine of this is, if I understand correctly, Steve Lewandowski. He's very keen on, both Lewandowski and John Cook are very keen on getting the finest experts on board. So we understand based on, on your previous work that, that you are among them, but it's amazing how they can find these people. Well, actually, for the, uh, for the debunking handbook, uh, Stefan Lewandowski used some, something that we know from science, which is a systematic review approach. So he kind of mm -hmm. um, identified papers that are out there and looked at the authors. And whenever he found people who published more than one article about misinformation, he wrote down that name and contacted those people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was kind of his systematic approach of identifying authors. There was more to it. And he will, um, he's actually in the process of writing down how he actually identified all these experts for the debunking handbook. For the COVID-19 handbook, it is more a bottom-up approach of uh, volunteers and behavioral scientists who are who have the time to actually contribute to it yeah yeah but this work is absolutely amazing it and, is uh, this approach and this method that he he touched on a little bit uh on our, our interview with him as well but this is very meta in the, the process of science on doing science and that's really cool <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah and it's it's very new i've i've never seen 
a list of authors for a handbook being generated like that. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. So thank you very much for joining us. And uh, we really appreciate you spending the time. And uh, thanks for the amazing work that you guys are doing. As I understand, you continue to do that. So yes, I will. It's, definitely. Like it's done. It's an ongoing job. O- always working progress. Yes. Yes, it is. It's, it's never done. But uh, we as communicators and we as skeptics will try to do our share of the work as well and uh, share your research, share the outcome of this uh, amazing collaboration with the world. And uh, if there are people out there who would like to translate it, get in touch with either the authors or us and we can make the connection. So, Philip Schmidt, Thank you very much again. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thanks a lot. It's been lovely to talk to you. And uh, whenever there's new developments, please come back and talk about it. Definitely, definitely. Take care. Stay safe. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. So do you feel that we are much smarter now <laughs> as to well, how to how to approach uh, vaccine hesitancy and all the like? I would say like this. It, it is an extremely valuable document and i think everybody should download it and look at it it's not very long but it contains a lot of great uh, hints and tips and how to communicate Mm. and uh, i can say that today uh, as we record this uh, we have initiated the translation of it into swedish so i hope that will be finished within very good yeah i don't know it'll maybe it'll take uh, a couple of weeks or a month but we will get it up in swedish as well i think everybody should read it that's great yeah and it's if only we didn't have that much time before the end of this madness right so it would be great to be able to say that, oh, it's much more urgent than that. Uh, you don't have a couple of months to, to do it. No. Unfortunately, we will. <laughs> yeah. We will have to endure. Yeah, that is right. But I, I'm afraid, as you say, that we will live with this for mm. <laughs> some time to come. And, uh, of course, I would like it to be immediately translated to every language in the world. But um, I think we'll, it will still be needed in, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, we, we just had a very interesting conversation that was featuring all the major vaccine and uh, virus experts that regularly appear on TV in Hungary talking about the, the pandemic and the, and the virus. And that was very interesting to listen to all of them sitting together, sitting down like in a round table and talking about all that uh, that, that we want to know. That's the kind of thing that, that we need from experts. I mean, it was good to see that they agreed that no matter which vaccine you go for, but a vaccine is much better than the illness itself, the disease, than getting the disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So no matter which one you can get your hands on or you can get into your arms, <laughs> more like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just get it. Right. Get it as soon as you yeah, can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. All right. So on that very positive note... <laughs> I think uh, we've had enough for this week and I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week when we come back with a regular episode, goodbye. Hello. Tschüss. Vislat. Told me that aliens really exist. 
This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe You are listening to the ESP. I cannot believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot believe it. Am I really? ASMR at ESP. Am I really <laughs> listening to the ESP? All right then. All right then. You are. Bottle of water. <laughs> I'm thirsty. <first>, eh? <laughs> Andrew, do you have a cigarette? I have a smoke. <laughs> or are you Harry Potter? <laughs> Harry Potter. Helicopter. Harry Potter. <laughs> Drinking a bottle of water. <laughs> you know what they call Harry Potter in China? You know what it's called? <laughs> no, no. What? <laughs> Ali Bote. Ali Bote. Is it genuine? Sorry. Yeah, that's what they told me when I was there 15 years ago. Yeah. This is episode 260. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co hosts. This is episode 261. I'm your host, Andras Pinter. <laughs> you'd you'd think he knew it by now but no he has to read it otherwise so 